0: This is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Jeffrey Keating. Jeffrey is a Colorado-based woodworker whose dedication to exquisite craftsmanship and creative design have made him one of today's most sought-after furniture makers. But creating furniture is just a small part of his interesting life story. Jeffrey's also worked as a mechanic on a professional motocross team and holds two graduate degrees in theology, one from Yale and one from Notre Dame. He discovered his talent for woodworking about a decade ago while still in graduate school, and soon decided to go all in on building a career as a professional craftsman. Jeffrey has a unique ability to understand and respect the past while maintaining a commitment to a sustainable future. He uses reclaimed or responsibly sourced wood to create his furniture, and all of his work is built to last. He fully expects each piece to be passed on from one generation to the next. His workshop and home are in a beautiful 1897 building that was formerly a grocery store. He and his wife fully repurposed the historical space to be their growing family's base of operations. And as you'll hear, Jeffrey's study of history and theology plays a huge role in his design ethic and commitment to sustainability. We met up at Jeffrey's shop, which is located just a block north of Colorado College here in Colorado Springs. As you'd expect from someone with Jeffrey's interesting background, we had a fun and wide-ranging conversation. We talk about his family's history as craftsmen, and how he's the fifth generation to make a living working with wood. We talk about his transition from academia to woodworking, and how he managed to get his business off the ground in the early days. We talked about his commitment to quality and how he balances his artistic goal of perfection with the economic realities of running a business. And we touch on his daily routines and techniques he uses to avoid the creative blocks that arise from time to time. And as usual, we cover his favorite books, most powerful outdoor experience, and much more. Hope you enjoy. The way that I normally start these interviews is I ask people, when you meet somebody for the first time, never met them before, introduce yourself, and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that?
1: i typically just say woodworker, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a, for me especially, I feel like it's a tricky question. Yeah. Because most of the people you meet, they just don't quite get it. (laughs) You know, they'll think of like, oh, my uncle's a carpenter and frames houses or, you know, is a trim carpenter and does stairs or something like that. But I, you know, I design and build furniture, Uh but I usually just lead with woodworker.
0: Nice. Nice. So can you, I want to dig into the details of the furniture. So first of all, can you just describe the type of furniture you make?
1: Yeah. So it's a little bit more, um, kind of a blend of styles. Mm -hmm. Uh, a friend of mine called it neo-traditional and I have kind of stuck with that. I've run with that. I like that. So it's kind of like shaker influences, um, early American influences. I do a lot of spindle back chairs and then, you know, kind of combine those lines with more contemporary styles. Okay. So it's kind of a little bit of a blend of kind of early Americana and contemporary lines. And then it's just individual standalone pieces. Like I said, I do a lot of spindle bag chairs and dining sets and dining tables.
0: So who are your customers? Like who, who do you, do you sell these to retail outlets or do you sell them only no,
1: to No, 99% of what I do is directly to a client. Yep. Um, for a time I made a, uh, a desk set for a furniture store in New York, ABC home. Okay. It's kind of this big furniture store in Manhattan. Um, and that was just such a hassle. Yeah, and even just working with interior designers, it's typically just directly to the client, and most of it takes place over the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably eighty percent of my business is in New York, just for whatever reason. That's really? kind of how things have worked out.
0: Interesting. Um, so, like I said, I want to dig into that, but I also want to talk about your background because okay. it's super interesting. Um, you got a little bit of woodworking in your DNA, from right. what I understand. Right? Uh, can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. So my mom's side of the family were all woodworkers. Like five generations, right? right?
0: You're the fifth, is that Exactly.
1: Right? And so they were, early on, they were church builders. Okay. And so they would at, literally, in the southwest, move from town to town and build a church. What years
0: was this? This
1: was probably late 1800s. Wow. Um, early 1900s. Okay. And they would live in Groom, Texas, or wherever it was, for the two to three-year period it would take to build the church. And then they would pick up stakes and move to the next town. Wow. Wow. Um, And so when I was a kid, though, I didn't really pay much attention to it. You know, my uncle was still doing woodworking, my mom's brother. But it wasn't... You know, you'd see photos at my grandmother's house of churches they had built and things like that. And I always thought it was cool, but, you know, I was a high school kid and had other things (laughs) that I was interested in. Uh It wasn't sanding, you know, sanding boards in
0: my uncle's shop. so. Um, So how did you... Were you doing a lot of woodworking as a kid? I know, not Just at all. Just none? None. Did you work with your hands much, any type of? Yeah,
1: so my, um, we, growing up, we always raced motorcycles.
0: Okay, okay.
1: And so, uh, that was something that we did on the weekends, and then my brother actually raced professionally for a while, and I was his mechanic, and right. so spent a couple of years on the road traveling with him.
0: What kind of races was he doing? Uh, motocross. Okay. Yeah,
1: yep. and a little bit of supercross. Wow. Um, but he, he would do kind of all the outdoor circuit, and then pick a few races on the indoor so that's
0: intense stuff. yeah
1: so and he liked it and it was cool for me i was you know a teenager whenever i did that with him uh-huh. so to get to travel the country and you know in a box van and you know weeks on the road at a time and is he your was he your older brother he's my older brother he's nine okay. years older yeah. okay
0: got it yep. cool and so somewhere along the way you went to you got some graduate degrees from Notre Dame and Yale, is right. that right? Yep. So how does that fit in?
1: Well, so I taught high school shortly after college. So okay. I went to kind of a small liberal arts school in San Antonio, Got St. Um, Mary's. Yeah, and yeah. from there, wasn't sure what to do.
0: What did you study there?
1: Uh, theology. Theology. Yeah, okay. I had a minor in geology, which is kind of what I initially went into, and then got sidetracked and was doing theology and ended up doing that, and then taught at a all-boys Catholic high school. Yep. Taught religion and thought, man, this is cool. I enjoyed it. And I coached basketball and it was just, it was fun, you know, working with the kids every day and yeah. it was a cool job, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do long-term and it, you know, you had at a private school and they didn't pay a lot. And so I applied to grad school thinking I'll teach college. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of, so I ended up, I think by getting sidetracked into religious studies and then trying to figure out how to make, you know, a viable living out of it. I ended up going to all these grad programs yeah. <laughs> and trying to figure out like, I'll be a professor and that's how all this will work. Sure, and I invested so much time and energy into it that I felt like you get so far down the road, it's hard to make a U turn. Sure, you know, so I was working on my PhD, doing my dissertation, and that's when I thought, man, I need to do something else. You know, I need
0: to make a change. What was your area of study, or what was your dissertation on?
1: Yeah, so it was ethics. Um, So I was working on a PhD at Notre Dame, and ethics was kind of my area of concentration, and and basically the general. area that i focused on was like american catholicism. Okay. So like how catholics fit into the american project basically.
0: Got it. And so you know i feel like when you when you think about what you've done that's on one really far end of the spectrum as far as intellectual sit in a room and think about stuff and read and write and then what you're doing now requires a lot of intellectual horsepower but it's also manual. I mean right. you're working with your hands. Right. And so it's almost like You've operated on both sides of the spectrum. So how did, you, how did you end up making that hard transition away from the religion?
1: To yeah, working? so initially it was just I started buying hand tools right. when I was still a grad student. Okay. And I thought, man, I just want to do something with my hands again and give myself a break from studying in the library. Yep. And so I just was in, in the basement at the house I was living in in Indiana and was making little boxes and learn how to cut dovetails and things like that. And so that then turned into a couple friends wanted something built. And so I'd build a vanity or whatever it was. And it, the wheels just started turning. You know, I thought, man, I really love this.
0: And did you was
1: that a surprise that you loved it? No, I think that there was enough overlap from, like, you know, how I grew up. We were kind of, you know, we were like a do-it-yourself family. Yeah. And so if the fence needed to be built, we would build it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, being a motorcycle mechanic. So it didn't surprise me that I enjoyed it. But I think the level to which I enjoyed it maybe was a surprise yeah. to where it was pretty early on that I thought, man, if I could somehow turn this into a business where I could do this as a living, that would be really cool.
0: So when did it hit you? How far into it did it hit you that I can do this full time?
1: Well, I'd, I did it probably for a couple of years just on the side while I was still a grad while, student. While yep. still in school. Exactly. And then at that time, I'd met you know the girl who's now my wife. And so we were, got engaged and we're getting ready to get married. And right after we got married, I took, um, my qualifying exams for my PhD program and was, had to submit my dissertation proposal and do all that, that first like eight or nine months after we got married. Mm -hmm. And it just really sunk in that like, man, I I need to, if I'm going to do this, this is the time now, you know, to do the woodworking. And she was super supportive. Um, I don't think she saw it coming. It really was, yeah. <laughs> It was <laughs> really Surprise. out of left field for her <laughs> to be like, Oh, we're gonna do this and you'll be a professor and she was applying to some grad programs for something else and we kinda had this like academic lifestyle all plotted out yeah. of what we were gonna do and I just came to her one day and I thought, Man, I just need to do this other thing and try this woodworking thing and she was supportive and she was teaching high school at the time. Okay. And so that made it where we could just live off of what she made and I dove right about two years in to kind of piddling around in the basement I dove into trying to do woodworking full-time as a business
0: and did you have a client base at that point beyond friends had you built up or was it just like starting from it was scratch? starting from scratch yeah, so what it was did you just, do I mean like how did you even go about that
1: yeah so it, it was it was all just you know these kind of serendipitous moments and word-of-mouth moments and so the first big commission that I got was building the kitchen You know, and I would do anything at the, now I primarily design and build individual pieces of furniture. But at the time I was, you know, if you wanted it built and it was a fence or a deck or whatever, that's my specialty. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. You should ask. Exactly. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. So they wanted, these guys in Chicago wanted a kitchen built and I said, Hey, I'll do that for you. And it was, you know, it was a really nice house. It was this brownstone in Chicago and they took a chance on me. Um, and, I, it, and to take a step back, it was just it was a moment where I was at a friend's birthday party, mm-hmm. and they were hosting it. I think it was this girl's uncle. And well, I just started talking to, to the, this, uh, these guys, and they hired me. And, um, and then I, ended, I went out and bought a book, How to Build Kitchen Cabinets, <laughs> literally. <laughs> and what year was this? Oh, how many years ago? This was probably, it's been 10 years now, nine, 10, not 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah, so a decade ago. Um, and then just dove in, you know, and it was going to be a really nice, and it turned out it was a nice kitchen, but it was, there were a lot of late nights and all nighters and yeah, you know, up late, uh, and up early and weekends and you name it. So,
0: well, that's what we were talking about before we started recording is that, you know, you can, you got to learn sometimes, right. And the only right. way to learn is doing it. Right. And it, so, was, right. it was trial course. by error. Exactly. That's, that's really cool. And so from there. When did it transition into mostly individual pieces? Of Shortly furniture?
1: after that. Okay. So while I was working on that, um, I, I was able to use some of the money that I made off of that job to upgrade my machines. I didn't have a lot of machines early on, it was a lot of hand tools, which was cool. Yeah. I learned how to make things by hand. Yep. Yeah. Um, but then I, you know, if I was going to do it as a business and turn things around efficiently, I needed some more machinery. And so I was able to take some of the money and, and put that into the machinery. Um, upgrade my machinery and then and have a little bit of a cushion where then I started making some individual pieces that didn't have a buyer yeah Um, and so that was kind of that first first big kitchen job was a big break and so I kind of was able to transition that into several pieces of furniture that I was proud of that then I could put on a website and get that going and try to get a little bit of that out there into the ether and it wasn't just word of mouth and friends anymore you know
0: yeah so your your buddy that introduced us or that turned me on to your work he was very very complimentary of you and the reputation you've built in the furniture world and if you think 10 years is not all that long I mean that's a I'm sure it seems very long to you and every all the hard work you've put in right but to to build up such a good reputation I mean how did you how did you kind of narrow down your style like your specific style versus or how long did it take you to to think all right this is my style versus I'm copying what this guy did or i'm taking a little bit of what this guy did mix it with us this what this lady did i mean how how long did that take for you to feel confident like all right this is me
1: yeah it was probably about three years into making furniture okay that i felt like i'd kind of found my voice yep and then it's seriously has been like the last couple years where i felt like i've refined that a little bit where i feel happy with it where what's in my head is actually what's getting churned out that's
0: you funny know? you said that because that was gonna be my next question is is you I hear I, I love learning about writers and a lot of times I hear when they say they're starting out the idea of what they want to write in their imagination they can't get it on the paper right and so do you feel like now what is in your head comes out
1: yes and that was not the
0: case early on.
1: Really, you know, was it that
0: frustrated? Did you get frustrated with it?
1: It was, it was tough because there's a there's the I definitely have a strong perfectionist side, and so you know I would miss every deadline because I was still working on the piece because I wasn't happy with it. Yeah. Um, and so some of that was trying to figure out how to then just say this is has to be good enough for now because they need their table or whatever it is. I got to get it out the door and I need to pay some bills. Yeah. And. And I wasn't sure what I was doing though on the woodworking side. You know, I felt like I had kind of a decent foundation, but translating that into a piece that's in your head was just a whole different ball game. And so I think it was a matter of the skill set catching up to what I could see design wise, mm-hmm. the technical skill set catching up to that, and then once that started to catch up. Then I realized, like, oh, I need to kind of work on some of the design elements, mm-hmm. you know, because that had also got shelled a little bit yeah. because I was so focused on, like, okay, how does this joint work? And I want that to be really solid. Yeah. Um, and then you get to a point where you, it starts to come together and you think, like, oh, okay, well, the proportions are a little off. And so, you know, so then it was just this interplay of kind of between the technique and then the design to where it's only been like the last couple of years where I feel
0: happy with it. I've talked to several different. Craftsmen or craftspeople on this podcast and one of them that comes to mind is this uh, fly fish fly ride company out of Montana called um, Tom Morgan Rodsmiths, and they were founded by Tom Morgan and he just had such a commitment to perfection or as close to perfection as you can get and the the guys that ended up buying the company from him said that he would break if he got a ride 99% done and it wasn't right he'd throw it in the trash is that the kind? Of, I mean, do you have that type of mentality or that t- kind of commitment to perfection? Yeah, maybe not quite to that extreme. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's extreme. Of is. I've never
1: heard anything like that. <laughs> and some of it is paying the bills. You yeah. know, yeah, some yeah, of a it for me it. was the reality of okay, I've got to turn these. I've got to turn these pieces out where we can keep the lights on. Sure. And so you don't want to send out something that's defective. Yeah. You know, but if there's something that's I'm not happy with as the designer, um it was a matter of degree. There's definitely pieces, there's definitely commissions that I've canceled. Uh You know, you can see in the corner sitting over there, those rails are from a bookcase that I just, it never came together. Really? And I got so frustrated with it (laughs) that I just called them up and I said, we'll have to do this another time, you know?
0: Well, I think that's cool. I mean, because I
1: just, yeah, I wasn't happy with it. It's a commitment Um, to quality. Yeah. So a lot of it is like structurally, is it sound? Do I feel comfortable sending that out? Yeah. And if I don't, then I definitely won't send it out. But on design, it's it's that fine balance of saying like, okay, I got to pay the bills and I'm going to have to revisit this project later, but let's send this one out now.
0: Well, that brings me to another question I had, you know, the, the idea of being a craftsman and being creative and, and, you know, bringing your, this vision to life, that's one thing. And being able to do that well is mandatory, but the other side of being able to make a living doing this is the business aspect right. of it. And I mean, there are a lot of backyard or garage craftsmen that are very talented, but may not have the business acumen to make it happen, um, pay the bills. And so how have you, has that come naturally to you, the business side of, of things?
1: Yeah, not at all. <laughs> if you could see his eyes when,
0: when I asked that question.
1: <laughs> yeah, not at all. That's been a huge hurdle for me really? to overcome. Yeah.
0: So how have you overcome it? I don't think I have
1: <laughs> <laughs> still working on right. that. <laughs> Whenever I open up my uh, bank account, I look at it. I'm like, okay, I got to keep working on that side of it. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is so hard for me because for me being a designer and a woodworker and working with my hands, like that's what I enjoy. And that's what I feel like I'm good at. Yeah. Um, and wh- and I can see my deficiencies, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's glaring to me when something's not coming together and doesn't look right or it's not any good. Yeah. But on the business side, it's just so hard for me to think through like, okay, what can I do better? Uh Um, you know and then you take you try you'll reach out to people for advice and what i do is such a weird business sure there's just not there's no template to follow yeah you know and so that's just i feel like it's just kind of a a constant struggle yeah to balance like the business demands with designing and building things
0: well i I was saying that the you know the academic life and the craftsman life are on two opposite ends of the spectrum but If you think about it as a triangle, business is probably uh, you know on the other opposite end because it's just a different mindset, different part of your brain. Yep. Um, Well, it's obvious. I mean, you're doing. I think you're doing all right here. This is to talk about this building where we are right now. How did you end up here?
1: Yeah, so we're in an 1887 uh, grocer, basically. So it was built. Um, by a guy named Bramley Whitehead, mm-hmm. 1887. And he had a grocer kind of grocery grocer on the main level. And then he and his family lived up above it. Okay. And so it was some type of grocery store or corner store until the eighties, 1980s. And then, um, it was a pottery studio for a little bit. We bought it from a lady who had like a home boutique store. In it, and the upstairs was empty. Okay. And so my wife is from the area, and we were actually just in town visiting and saw it for sale and thought, man, that's going to be a great fit. We'd wanted to do a work-live setup yep. and just couldn't find a good fit, and then we just stumbled across this. We lived in Indiana at the time okay, and bought it, moved here, and then started to renovate the upstairs, nice. um, kind of rebuild the living area, and it's been a great setup for us.
0: So how has Living in the West – influenced your work or well, how does it influence you and then how does it influenced your work
1: yeah when we live in the midwest it just never felt like home you know the people were great the weather was not so great we lived right by Lake michigan so there's a lot of lake effect snow and yeah. lake effect clouds and rough and it was just i'm from texas and it was just a whole new world to me all sure. the gray and the cold i'm like where's the, where'd the sun go <laughs> And so when we moved back here, uh, back west for me and then you know home for my wife, it just felt, it felt a lot more natural to me. Yeah. And so I think I just had a lot more peace in my life in general, mm-hmm. just feeling more comfortable with geographically where we lived yeah. and being more used to the weather and everything else.
0: I keep uh, on this podcast hyping up Colorado Springs and I'm right. curious, <laughs> and people because I feel like it doesn't get the respect it right. deserves because I used to live in Boulder and everybody who lives in Boulder thinks Boulder's the greatest and when I said I was moving to Colorado Springs people in Boulder like I might as well said I was moving to Somalia exactly. they're like what <laughs> what just moving anywhere out of Boulder but and, and
1: especially here but it's yeah.
0: I mean it's just a cool place in this area we're neighbors and so this area where we live I mean it's just I don't think you could have a cooler cooler spot and no. we're you know Ten minutes from a fourteen thousand, the base of a fourteen thousand foot mountain. Right. I mean, if you love the West, this is it. Now that we've bought houses here, everybody can come. <laughs>
1: now that I own property, yeah. that's right. <laughs> now, when my wife and I, before we were married, when we were dating, um, I came out here to visit her and her family over a summer. Okay. And I just, I'd read an Atlantic article. Oh, really? About Colorado Springs, and it was about all the mega churches up north, and. It was not a flattering article. Sure. And so I just did, I wasn't sure what I was getting into coming out here. And as soon as I got here and we went for a walk and she took me out, like you said, a five minute drive and you're out in these beautiful places hiking and mm-hmm. man, I fell in love with it right away.
0: Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. We could talk about that the whole time. But, um, so how has the West, if it has at all influenced your work or your, your design, your production?
1: I feel like it design wise hasn't really done a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like if it did at all, it was probably before I moved out here. Really? You know, I felt like I, I wanted something that felt like it was contemporary in terms of the lines that I was creating, but had a little bit of, of, you know, kind of old timey feel to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think maybe that was something to do with where I grew up, you know, coming more from the West. Yeah. But once I moved here, the biggest challenge has been just a, a practical one of, of material. Really? You know, where you've got all the beetle kill pine that you want or fur or whatever, but in terms of hardwoods that make for good furniture, long lasting furniture, it's been tricky because then you've got to source it from somewhere else. And so then you're kind of worried about the environmental issues and everything else that goes along with that.
0: So that's one thing that you're really focused on from what I understand is the sustainability factor, both from the materials you use and making, you know, producing high quality furniture that is not gonna be thrown away and we passed along from generation to generation. Right. So can you talk a little bit about where that commitment and sustainability came from?
1: Yeah, I mean a lot of it I think came from my faith when I was, you know, in my old life doing graduate studies and studying ethics and just realizing the importance of taking care of the planet. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that was an easy translation from what I used to do to what I do now. It's like, okay, I can really implement this in a concrete way, in a way that I couldn't when I was just in the academy. Mm-hmm. And so very early on, I thought, okay, I want to figure out ways to source materials that, and you know, do that in a sustainable way. Um, and then the second component, which I think oftentimes gets overlooked and I think even sometimes with like the architectural stuff with like, oh, all these green innovations is I feel like we're still designing buildings that are going to be, you know, obsolete in 30 years. Yeah. It's like tear down and build another one. Yep. And so, you know, we used to build buildings that would last for 200 years. Mm-hmm. And so we need to focus on that again, I think. And that's what I want to try to do on the furniture side of it is say like, OK, we're going to pass this on and not fill up the landfill.
0: Well, that's you know thinking about the difference between the craftsman mentality and the business mentality. I mean, I, I went to business school and got an MBA, and the whole thing they're teaching is this bullshit idea of planned obsolescence. Right. You know, that's that is what corporations want. Right. And so, what you're doing here, it kind of flies in the face of of tradition or of today's standard business advice. I mean, there there are people that are. You're an example of somebody that goes against it, like Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia. He goes against it. A lot of these crafts, other craftsmen i am taught to have gone against it. But in a way, you're swimming upstream. Um, it's an interesting time, though. I think that you see there's, there's a critical mass of
1: people, I think, that realize that. Mm-hmm. And that those become the people that appreciate what you do. And then some of those people become you know, clients. Yep. And I think that's why Patagonia has had such success. They're, we're just at a unique moment where I think people are starting to see that and I think more people need to see it mm-hmm. um, and, and to be honest I don't know economically what that would look like like if everyone started doing what I'm doing yeah I don't know how that would work you know
0: yeah I mean it's, um, it's within and so it. there's
1: some there's really some tricky challenges that have to be confronted but I think fortunately for me we're at a place where people are starting to realize that and supporting it
0: so, what kinds of wood do you prefer to work with? Is there a specific type that you love more than any other? Yeah, so I work primarily in walnut. Okay, and
1: right now that's you know that's what people like right now also. So it works, but it just it machines really easily. It's okay. great to work with and tools. Um, it smells good. It's yeah. just it's just kind of a fun wood to work with, um, and it's what people really like right now. So it's a win win for me.
0: So back to your this, the talk about where you got your style, are there any other craftsmen or furniture makers or even just creatives in general that you've looked to, either you've known or just admired from afar that have influenced your work? And then second part of that, are there any books about creativity that you've have been, have played a big role in your um, creative process?
1: Yeah. So my initial woodworking hero was this guy, Sam Malouf. Um, and so everyone in the woodworking world that he's kind of their hero and yeah. so for people who aren't woodworkers that name might be new but if you're a woodworker listen to this I'll link to this, something yeah. so you can look him up and so he uh, he's from California and is just kind of this iconic furniture maker um, and it, he passed away 5 or 6 years ago but he he made you know he was famous for his rocking chairs but okay. he designed and made furniture and made a living doing it at a time when it was a lot more difficult to do than it is now Got it. And so he kind of was the guy I looked up to and modeled, you know, what I wanted to do after. And um, two years ago, the Riverside Art Museum in California, uh, right by where his studio is, did kind of like a hundred-year retrospective of his stuff wow. and then invited some contemporary chair makers to contribute pieces. So they asked me to contribute some pieces. And so that was – just kind of came full circle where um, – this guy that I looked up to, who really, his story kind of really pushed me over the edge of saying, like, I'm going to stop doing the academic stuff and do this.
0: It was, it was partly looking at his Exactly, work exactly, just,
1: his work and his life story, you know, because he came to a little bit later. He didn't start doing that as a business until he was in his 30s. and Really? Um, so it was just kind of a model for me in terms of the way he built things, not so much the lines, but just his, you know, his personal story more.
0: Are there any books that have meant, uh, that have helped you with your creativity?
1: Yeah, so I've been, reading, um, I've been reading a lot of books more about architecture and space mm-hmm. and just like how we think about lines. There's a book called The Poetics of Space mm-hmm. that I've, I'm actually in the middle of now. Um, and so I think I've probably come to it more as like theory mm-hmm. more recently. Sure. Early on, it was like book techniques. You know, books about the technique and how tos, and here's yeah, how you yeah. do this joint, and here's how these hand tools uh-huh. work, and and it's a weird little world. Woodworking's a weird little world, and so there's these people that are really into it, and they keep a lot of that alive. You know, those the the things that, you know, the big furniture mills and things like that. Just it's all done on CNCs now. Yeah. But there's this, you know, kind of these group of hardcore woodworkers that continue to write books about how to sharpen hand saws and things like that. And so that's a lot of what I was getting into early on book wise. Uh Um, And now it's more about, you know, thinking through like, how do we think about space and how does that affect us? And.
0: That's really cool. So more just kind of the, the theoretical aspect of it. Right. Um, So the, the constant, another constant things that has come up in my conversations with craftsmen and craftspeople is the, constant battle against distraction and and the concentration that it takes to do what you do. And so how how do you balance all the nonsense of social media and email and you know those are the bad distractions and then good distractions that you need to be distracted by but like your family, you know you got kids. How do you find time or the space to really just zone in? Have you developed any techniques for that over the years?
1: No, one of the things I think that's critical for me is I start early. Do you? Yeah, I'll get up at 5 and then just try to get into it, you know. And just I straight like I,
0: into it? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I try to – I feel like if I can get off to a good start and then you kind of get wrapped up in something. The momentum. The momentum kind of carries you through the day where then where people are knocking on the door, the kids are running through the shop or whatever, it's a little bit easier to kind of – you know deal with that and then get back to what you were doing yeah so like getting started on the right foot's big for me Mm -hmm. um so i want to get up before everyone else in the world is out and doing stuff and calling me and emailing me have you
0: always done that or has since you've been making furniture is that a a relatively new thing
1: more and more i think that early on when i did it it was just out of necessity Mm -hmm. of like okay i'm way behind and i don't know how to do this next step and so (laughs) i'm gonna get up really early and then stay up till midnight and and so what I think I realized, though, in doing that, that like, oh, that was just a really great time of the day to get a lot done. Yeah. Uh, but it is, it's hard. And part of what I do is just relying on social media, and I'm not very good at it. You know, yeah. I don't I don't keep up to speed with it as much as I should and keep my pages updated like I should and all that. Um, and it just is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that I'm, I'll have a new website that'll be up in the next two or three weeks. Oh, cool. But I was talking to my web developer I work with, and the site that's currently up when, when that went live, Instagram didn't exist. You know, there was no such thing as Instagram. And so it's just this constantly changing landscape and it's, and I find it while it helps me keep my business going, it's just such a distraction.
0: Yeah, it's, it is necessary in a lot of ways, but it can really take over in, in the wrong ways if you let it, or at least that's, that's, no, I think that that's
1: right. And I just don't, and I'm not sure what to do about it. I'm not sure a way around it you know, because I like my website is where a lot of people see my stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, Um, like your Instagram, you know, it's, I think it, it makes people's days better to be able to look at these cool pictures. Right. It's, it's a, it is definitely doing a service and it's putting good stuff out in the world, but you just got to figure out a way to balance it. So it doesn't distract from making the stuff that you take pictures of. Right. You know, right. Uh, Are you, would you consider yourself more focused on the goal, the end goal of creating, bringing this vision that's in your brain to reality, or are you more focused on the process?
1: Yeah, that for me is a tricky one because I feel like I'll switch back and forth. Oh, really? You know, and so I'll have these longer-term business goals and design goals, and then I'll end up getting sucked into trying to you know some of the bigger picture things of what do i need to do to make that a reality mm-hmm. and then individual pieces in the shop are starting to back up where i'm like okay i need to get those out the door yeah. you know yeah and then if i can switch gears and really get into the piece and think through like okay here's like the process of actually designing and making and then i feel like i'll lose the you know the force for the trees and and then some of the longer term goals that i need to constantly be kind of keeping in the back of my mind and working towards will get set aside yeah, and so it's just a tricky balance, you know. I like of. that
0: answer because I think some people will say definitively one, one way or the other, other right? I and mean, maybe that's the case. But that seems more in line with how things work for me—kind right. of ebb and flow. Right, do what you need to. Um, so, the, you know, some creatives talk about like authors, writers talk about writer's block, and do you ever encounter creative block in this? I mean, I guess you do, like with the the bookshelf over there, and if you do. Are there any techniques you found to plow through it or get around it or, you know, force inspiration to strike?
1: Yeah, for me, I mean, I definitely experience it. Um, That's one of the hard things is that I'm trying to switch over my business model to a little bit more of a catalog-based setup Mm -hmm. where I've got pieces that I've already designed and ideally even a little bit further down the road, pieces that are already made. And so these are pieces available for purchase because it's just so difficult when someone says, you know, hey, I want a coffee table but not like the coffee table you've got on your website a little bit different or whatever and then just to try and kind of on the fly come up with something that you're happy with yeah um you know i can build something for you but am i going to be happy with it design wise and so it just it's a challenge and the one thing that i try to do to overcome that is i'll start nailing together mock-ups where it's just some cheap wood and a nail gun and and that way I don't feel like I have that much commitment into it time yeah. or, you know, material-wise if it if it's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And you can just break it down and make some cuts and try again. Yeah. So that's usually how I try and deal with it is to do, you know, kind of three-dimensional one-to-one mock-ups basically.
0: That makes sense.
1: But even then sometimes it just you just don't have a good idea, yeah. you know, like, I don't know, a canopy bed. Great. (laughs) Maybe in a few years I'll come, you know, something will strike me and I'll see something that'll inspire something, but I don't have any
0: ideas right now. So, you know, from, from this 10 years of working as hard as you can in this, in this creative endeavor, are there any kind of bigger life lessons that you've taken from, from that experience? I mean, maybe, Things that you wouldn't have known otherwise or things that you pass on to your kids? How, how is it? What lessons have you learned from from all this?
1: For me, one of the things that was interesting is just how well things turned out. Really? You know, I think I was a little nervous. I was probably too dumb to be as nervous as I should have been Yeah. when I quit the academy and, you know, just switched horses midstream. and, But... Quickly thereafter, after I got into it, I thought, "Oh man, what the hell am I in the middle of?" <laughs> you, you know, yeah. 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 Like when we moved here into this building, I we got here and I went immediately into just demoing out the second and third floor like we just gutted it completely my brother and nephew came out and it was just like within six or seven days there was nothing left but the exterior walls you know and you're in then and then i thought oh man <laughs> what did i do I should... <laughs> you're brave man but that's kind of how it was with the business i just dove in and then six months later i thought uh-oh It's like they say,
0: burn the boats, you know, the Viking thing. Yes, exactly, no plan B. I mean, I
1: think sometimes I'll see, like, advice things online. It'll be like, okay, make sure you have a plan B. And I felt like if I had a plan B, I might have taken it, you know, too early and not fought through it to see it to the other side. So just seeing how, you know, this kind of cliche and sappy, but, you know, following that dream and then seeing where it goes.
0: Yeah. Would you say, if you had to put a percentage on it, What percent of your success is due to talent, and what percent is due to the ability to work harder than anybody else? Yeah,
1: probably 70-30, with 70 being on the work harder side of it.
0: That's another thing that's common. (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't think that going in.
1: You know, I thought, like, okay, if I'm a really good – if I have a great eye and a really good designer or whatever, then that'll be the key to success. You know, and I think that has to be an ingredient, but – it was just at work and, every, you know, not really. At, Cause when you see it, when you'll get like, that's the other thing about the online, there's kind of an online community of like creatives that you'll get plugged into. Yeah. And that's the one thing they have in common. They all just, yeah. We're all posting at three in the morning yeah. <laughs> and you know, yeah. Burning the candle at both ends. Sure. But I think that's kind of what it takes. It seems like it. Yeah.
0: I mean, talent, there are plenty of talented people. Right. Exactly. Exactly, and I think and and the technology these days allows the talented people to get the word out right. easier than it used to be right, and so the kind of the the only factor that's left to chance is how hard can you work right, and for people who don't know, he's got three kids and a five month old like I do, and so not only is he working, <laughs> he's working you know with the kids in the middle of the night as well. Um, I'm impressed. So my dad. Uh, recently retired and he's going all in on woodworking okay and just loves it what's some advice for beginner woodworkers people who just really love it and he's I mean he's done some cool stuff it's really cool but what, what would your advice be to people like that
1: on the hobbyist side even uh-huh. yeah. yeah I would definitely I'm a huge proponent of hand tools really and so to really focus on honing that skill set and some people, they get into it and that's what they like about it. And so it's not something that really needs to be encouraged. Yeah. But we've come up with these machines that do the basics of what hand tools do just so much more efficiently and accurately that it's yes. easy to get sucked into that. Well, I'll just, you know, I'll just, this machine right here does it for me in a tenth of the time and more accurate. Yeah. But then there's things that the machine can't do. And so the more you kind of push forward on honing those hand tool skills, I think the bigger the basket's going to be on the creative side. You know, you just have a lot more opportunities and avenues to explore design-wise of things that you want to build, or, can't, or even if it's just someone else's piece that you're copying. of being able to like, oh, I can execute that joint, you know.
0: And I would imagine the slower pace of of hand tools gives it more time to kind of soak into your brain right. and, and kind of understand just really the basics of how it all works.
1: Exactly. Yeah, because when you get right down to it, a lot of what you're doing is it's just it's very straightforward but there's just these really kind of minute nuances in the middle of it Mm -hmm. and you just, those get swept over, you know, when it's when a machine's doing it for you. And so you're like, I don't know why that joint never quite comes together. Right. You know? Yeah. But you'll see that when you're doing it by hand, you see it as it's happening.
0: So for somebody who is a hobbyist, but wants to make the leap to professional, what would your advice be to them? Don't do it.
1: (laughs) 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 No, I don't know. I get a lot of that. Like we do, uh, the Carter Colorado college is right across the street from my shop. Yep. And so I do kind of an informal internship program with them where, uh, the, I did not do, I, did, I was working on a big restoration project the past couple of years. And so I did not do this, but the previous four years I took a summer intern. And so, and then classes will come by and visit and a lot of, you know, Similar, not necessarily woodworkers, but saying, like, I'm an artist or I'm studying art as a college, you know, as my major in college, and what do I, how do I make the jump or do you have any advice? And it's just such a tricky thing to figure out how do you translate what you can do creatively or artistically into a a viable business model. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of it would be is to, you know, maybe take some business classes, take some marketing classes. That's smart. Um, So that would be kind of one piece of advice and then the other would be you know, you've got to be. You got to know. You got to go in with like clear eyes of what you're getting into on the work side of it, yeah. of how much work it's going to be. Um, one of the this was a younger girl who's an artist who was teaching a class at CC as a visiting professor, and she's a, a artist in LA, and she came out and she brought her class over here to the shop, and we were all visiting, and and she, like her and I had a lot of overlap, and the scene. you know, she got she would get up at five, and she would you know she would just plow through, and it wasn't. She did visual art. She did, you know, it was like painting and two dimensional stuff. And, yep. and it wasn't, oh, and I'm struck by the moment and I have the right idea and I'll paint this and then I'll go and, you know, at the coffee shop and smoke cigarettes the rest of the day. <laughs> you know, she was in her studio cranking on it like it was a job. Yeah. And that's what it took for her to, you know, to be able to do that.
0: I'd say 80% of the creatives I've had on this podcast, they all take that approach of you, you, you punching the time clock. And I, re- I heard a quote somewhere and it said, it was by a writer and he said, I do wait for inspiration to strike, but luckily it strikes every morning at 9 a.m. when I sit down at my desk. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. just got to grind through it. Right. Um, well, I've got a few questions that I ask everybody that's coming okay. on the podcast. And so if I can run through those with you and then I'll let you get back to it. This is, I want to work some of these machines. I don't even know what they do, but <laughs> I cut my damn hand off. Um, do you have any favorite books related to the American West? Are there any books that come to mind?
1: Yeah, the I, I, yeah, American West is one of my favorite topics. I have a lot. But so um, probably a couple would be uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed that one.
0: I haven't read that. that oh, you yeah, have up No. Yeah.
1: No, that. that was probably one of the first books that I read that really dealt with the Native American side of things. Yep. And so since then, I've read like another really good one I love. Is um I think S. C. Gwynn is the author, and it's um Comanche Moon.
0: Uh, no, Empire of the Summer, Summer Moon. Yes, That's, that one I really was so loved good. that one. Yeah, so good. Yeah. I
1: really enjoyed that one. But yeah, Barry Martin. When we did Knee was kind of the first book I read in that vein, and really loved it. Um, and it's just a kind of a sad, depressing book, uh-huh. but well worth the read. And then, uh, then my all-time favorite probably is uh,
0: Lonesome Dove. That's so good. Yeah, I never read fiction, and it's almost a problem. I and mean, but that book is. I think about it all the time. Right. And I feel like I know those characters. And I bet I read it 10 years ago. It's so good. Yeah. I know a guy named his kid Gus because of that book.
1: (laughs) No, it's like that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll go back and I'll listen to the audio version while I'm sanding. Really? You know, yeah. Do you do that a lot? Listen to audio
0: books? I do, yeah,
1: because there's just so much. You know, Probably when you're building a piece, 70% of the work is sanding it. Is it really? And so that you just have a ton of time where you're, especially once, you know, sanding is, it's not really mindless, especially when you're learning how to do it, but once you get good at it, it, you know, it's just this monotonous task. And so 70%.
0: mm -hmm. Wow.
1: Yeah. I think, and I think that's something else that people don't realize. They have this vision of like, Oh, I want to be a woodworker and I want to like cut some hand cut dovetails and, and
0: then spend 10 hours sanding it. Daniel's son. You do your karate <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Wax on, wax off. Exactly Sand right. defense. Um, yep. What is your favorite book of all time? Doesn't have to be about the West. Oh,
1: I don't know. That's a tough one. Um, if, if I just like knee jerk had to shoot right now, it would probably be Crime and Punishment. Mm-hmm. I've not read that Yeah, yet. that's really good. Oh. I, got, so I read that um, just for fun on the side when I was older. And it was one of those where I got sucked in like a soap opera, you know, and I'm like, I got to find out what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And so I just kind of kept plowing through, but it's like a thousand page book. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> All these things that I was supposed to be doing, I was sneaking off to read the book to find out what happened next.
0: Do you Do you split your reading fiction and nonfiction?
1: Yes. It's probably about 50, 50. That's nice.
0: Yeah. I was talking to some really smart guy the other day and we talked about reading books and I said, I haven't I haven't read any fiction in like seven years. He goes, Ed, you're not well rounded. You need to read more fiction. I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> um, do you have any favorite documentaries or films? Do you ever? You don't have much time to be watching films.
1: No, we don't do a lot of, of the movies, but um, we just watched one. My daughter's into, uh, which was really an interesting moment where she's, you know, she's four and she's into dance and ballet, and so we watched this documentary called First Position. Okay about these uh, they're all young kids and they're in their but they're you know they're hardcore into ballet and so they're going to this competition where students then go on to get scholarships or even a position with a ballet company. Wow. And it just shows you like how hardcore and rigorous it is and That's all intense. the broken bones and stress fractures and everything that they then not only that happens to them but then they
0: fight through and so I went to a ballet Performance a few years ago, and I could not believe what athletes the men and women I mean, they got zero, they got like one percent body fat, and those moves they're doing. I don't understand how they don't break their feet. They do break their feet, right? Hardcore, yeah.
1: yeah. So, first position. Uh, if you okay. haven't
0: seen it, no, check it out. It's My daughter's cool. taking her first ballet class today. Is she? She is. <laughs> so you'll watch that and, and you'll she's either... She's going to become a professional, all right? No, I'm just joking.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're going to go to little league dad who <laughs> yeah. kicks in, exactly. You're like, you're not
0: dedicated enough. <laughs> um, so you've got all this, you've got full-time work, full-time family, you read, you just got a lot going on. Do you do anything else for fun?
1: I like to rock climb. Oh, nice. I don't get to do that as much as I would like. Not nearly as much, but I do try to get out of, on occasion.
0: Where do you go around here?
1: Oh, um, either Red Rocks or Garden of the Gods. Nice. Yeah, yeah Red, Red
0: Rocks. And then occasionally
1: down to the gym down the street, City Rock.
0: I take my daughter down there. So yeah. That's a nice it's cool. gym. It's really cool. They're redoing it now. Oh, are they? Yeah, they're really redoing it. I just renovating. let my
1: membership lapse because I was doing this historical restoration project that just ate, ate up my life. So
0: what I was trying to save you? some money. And yeah. um, so you you rock climbed and you you know you obviously connected to the outdoors what's the most powerful experience you've ever had in the outdoors and that could be scary funny memorable is there something that comes to mind or it could be like in your motorcycle riding days right is there some is there kind of a crazy experience that comes to mind
1: what two i mean when you said that two come to mind and one was the because the rock climbing was probably on the brain but when i first started the first time i went out was one of the interns from colorado college uh this guy neil's he was super accomplished climber, just really good guy and a really strong climber. And he kept talking about it and I was like, Yeah, let's let's do that one of these days. And so we just took an afternoon off and I thought and I didn't even know I didn't know what anything was called. Yeah. So I thought we were gonna be doing something similar to bouldering, yeah. even though I didn't know what bouldering was at the time where you're yeah. just, you know, climbing up ten or twelve feet and sure. He would show me some moves or whatever. And we ended up going up this multi pitch route. And you know, he harnessed, you know, had the harness. He had all the gear for me, and, you know, I strapped in and get, you know, tied me in. And and it wasn't, an e- you know, now it would just be a really easy climb for me, but it was the heights. And I've never considered myself someone who's afraid of heights. But you get up there, and I could not get my head around the idea that I was tied in.
0: It's in your DNA I, to be scared
1: of that. If you fall, I'm going to get caught. And so we would get to parts that, you know, at the time I thought was really tricky. And, I just couldn't get my head around that idea that, like, oh, I'm going to die. You know, I'm going to fall, and I'll die. You look down, and it's 100 feet down. and oh,
0: yeah.
1: Um, and then as soon as you get to the top, and there's just this adrenaline rush, and you just feel like, oh, that was amazing. So I literally went from, like, I am never doing this again. You know, I'm a father. I need to, you know, <laughs> what am I doing up here? I'm going to leave my kids without a dad. And then to, like, okay, when can we come? Let's, let's do this again tomorrow, you know. <laughs> Uh, so it went from one to the other. And then the second one was, um, south of here in the, uh, Sangre de Cristos. There's, there's kind of, it's not really a peak. It's almost kind of between two peaks, but it's this, it's a, it's kind of a Jeep road that goes up to, I guess what's Trinchera peak is the peak that's close yeah. by. And there's just this like amazing overlook. And I was probably 15 or 16 and just thought, you know, oh man, I'm high school. I played basketball and it was in, you know was trying to, you know, get a girlfriend and do all the things that teenage boys are doing. And, and we went out, we were camping and we went up that road with my family and I just got to the top and I just thought, what an amazing thing just to see just the majesty of it all, you know,
0: and now I live here. It's really cool. That range down there is beautiful. And a lot of people call it I know, don't don't tell me, don't. We need to edit this part out of the podcast. (laughs) Exactly. Um, If you had to pick a favorite location in the West, and it could be a town, like a mountain, like the one you just mentioned, is there a specific specific place that comes to mind?
1: That's probably it. Yeah, so right around Kachara, Colorado, right in that area.
0: Do Um, you access that from the west, I mean, from the east or the west side of the Sangre? So we do it from the east side. Okay.
1: Yeah, so we'll just actually, if you take off of Interstate 25, there's that highway of legends, whatever it is, yep. Highway 12 or 60, yep. 12, whatever. Um, and so you come in from the from the east side, and it's just like you said, it's there's just typically
0: not a ton of people, no. and it's the exact opposite of like any I 70 um, exactly stuff. Um, this is kind of a tough one, but if you can think of it, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Man. I don't know how I would answer that. I don't know how I'd answer half these questions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I need to steal someone else's answer yeah. from one of your earlier podcasts. I don't know, because it's also cheesy. You know, all the things that I think about, but then there's some truth in it. Yeah, there are cliches know? for a And reason. so kind of what I was talking about earlier about following your dream and and then it paying off. Yeah. You know? And even if it had failed, I think that I would have been... I would have been... Um, glad that i tried it at least really you know so maybe some sort of like don't be afraid type advice of you know don't let fear be the deciding factor when you're making a decision
0: i think that's good just before i came over i saw a quote and i'd seen it before but it was by mark twain something about your you'll regret you're much more likely to regret the stuff you didn't do than the stuff you did and i think that's cool to hear from somebody like you you know Yeah, because there were
1: definitely moments where I thought, "Man, I don't know if this is going to work," you know, early on. Yeah. And, but I didn't. Even then, I didn't have the sense of like, "Wow, I wish I wouldn't have done it. I should have stuck with whatever." You know.
0: That's great. That's good to hear. Um, So, kind of the final question: um, If you could make a request or offer some words of wisdom to the people that listen to this podcast, and it's just people that love the American West in one way or the other, um, do you have any? and ask a request words of wisdom something you could offer to those people who are listening
1: yeah i mean i think some of it is and i'm i'm assuming that probably the people who are listening to the podcast probably are there's probably a certain mentality of like they love the west they love the outdoors or they probably wouldn't be listening to it right um but i think the more people that can come to appreciate it in a way that's respectful the better you know and so, whatever that is, whatever walk of life you're from, or whatever your background is, or whatever you're doing professionally, or however that works, it's to try to think through ways that you can kind of approach the land as sacred. Um, you know, so for me, it's like, okay, well, what kind of wood do I use, et cetera? Yep. But just to be mindful of that.
0: That's awesome. And people need to heed that advice. Um, so, how can people connect with you online?
1: Yeah, so uh, Keating Woodworks on Instagram, it's probably the best place. Keatingwoodworks.com is my website. Um, like I said, it's it's overgoing, undergoing a, a rehab, nice. rebuild. But a couple weeks, the new one will be up, but the old one's still up. So, yeah, Keating Woodworks. Sounds Just good. Google well, it. Thanks for stuff will pop up.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, this is thank awesome. you. It's cool. Hey, it's Ed again.